Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this episode. ElectroConf EU 2020 is going hybrid. ElectroConf EU is taking place in London, England, or wherever you are for the virtual trek on the 9th and 10th of June, with training on the 6th through the 8th. For more information and to get your tickets, visit ElectroConf EU. Closure D will be held in Berlin on the 11th of June 2022. Closure D is a closure conference with national and international speakers. Talks will cover big data processing, asynchronous and reactive programming, closure script, and many other topics. The conference will be held in English. Tickets are on sale now, including supported tickets to help Closure D reach and support a more diverse audience by offering a contingent of free tickets to people from groups traditionally underrepresented in the closure community and in the wider tech community. If your company would like to sponsor Closure D, they have new packages lined up for recruitment, marketing, and sponsorship. And Closure D is always happy to expand their network and grateful for support. Visit closured.de for more information and to register. Codebeam Light Acorona is taking place in Acorona, Spain on the 11th of June. Celebrating 10 years since hosting an Erlang camp, Acorona is holding its first Codebeam Light. Tickets are available and are free, but the venue has limited capacity. And for those companies looking to help sponsor, email corona at codesync.global. Visit www.codebeamcorona.es to register or to find out more. Lambda Days 2022 has been pushed back until the 28th and 29th of July. Taking place in Krakow, Poland and online, two Lambda Days tracks will be run as hybrid tracks, combining both an in-person and virtual experience. Lambda Ladies, Lambda Days wants you. For every Lambda Lady in your group, everyone gets 10% off the price, up to 50% off the entire order. Visit lambdadays.org to register and to find out more. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that's how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Katja Mordant and Adam Mavarsky. They're both part of the program committee for Lambda Days 2022. So they, we got them both on to talk about their backgrounds and a little bit about Lambda Days, what they're doing there with the program committee and some of the things they've talked about and an inside peek at the program committee. So let's just start with some introductions. Do you want to introduce yourself, Katja? You want to go first? Yeah, sure. I'm Katja, and I've been a web developer since sort of the early 2000s. Before that, I made feature films. And before that, I was a kind of computer nerd from the age of 10. But I studied engineering to start off with, and then I swapped over into creative writing and film because the engineering culture wasn't turned out to be for me when I got to university. So Funnily enough, after I had children, the film industry wasn't for me anymore because it was totally incompatible with children. And I found back my love with programming. And since I've been in web development, I've been 
mostly trying to transform it into a more inclusive space, which meant that uh, when I discovered functional programming and how easy it was for beginners to get started with functional programming, that's where my kind of love for that came from. Yeah, I think that's a good introduction. <laughs> Adam, you want to introduce yourself, please? Hello. As I said, I'm, my name is Adam Warski. I live in Warsaw, in Poland. And I've been working remotely from my home for like the last 15 or 17 years, maybe. So a lot of what I've been doing has been centered about remote work. We've actually created a company that was remote first 13 years ago, I think now, which was quite original back then. Now it's quite popular, especially in the last years. So I've been working at the company that I co-founded for almost as long as I remember. Uh, before that, I think I've been studying computer science and doing some consulting as well. I hope I'm still mainly a programmer. Nowadays, I mainly do Scala, like last seven years or so. But I also try to stay on top of, you know, other programming related and functional programming related things, not to get too much into the Scala bubble. So yeah, I sometimes try to blog about things I find interesting. I do some open source projects in Scala and I, I'm trying to do some client work, you know, just to stay in the loop. I guess it's about it. So Katya, you said that you started out being interested in computer and programming and engineering in a young age. What was some of that background there? And then we'll jump over to the, when you came back in after that, what did that look like? And your transition into finding functional programming. Okay, so the background is that my father was a mechanical engineer. And so obviously I was exposed to that. And when we got our first computer, I was just very taken with being able to program it and very taken with problem solving. Maths was always like my favorite subject at school and things like that. But when I got to engineering at university, it turned out that it wasn't really creative enough for me and it wasn't the type of people that I liked to spend my time with, which to be blunt about it, hopefully that landscape is changing. But I decided at that time that my life was too short for me to be in misery because of the company that I was keeping. <laughs> what kind of languages were you first exposed to? Was that just like doing stuff on basic or something else? Yeah, basic and logo, obviously, when I was in primary school, and then we moved on. So I, I went to primary school in California as well, which I think was a lot more progressive on the teaching kids computers front. And yeah, so we did basic and logo as part of the curriculum. And then I had like after school clubs and things. Then we moved on to Pascal. And so by the time I actually left engineering was when object oriented was very, very first being introduced onto the scene. So I didn't do any formal object-oriented programming at all as part of my degree then. I went back and did a degree with the Open University in the early 2000s when I was trying to get back into computing and then did Java. So you get a fair different kind of stuff. You get Logo, which is very visual feedback yeah. kind of stuff. You have basic, very procedural you said you got into Java at that point, so that was a little bit of oh, oh When you're coming back in, 
what did that look like in established? Because you do, and you work with Elm now. What was that transition of coming through, coming back in now after you've taken the break, you're picking up software. If you're doing some open courseware and doing some stuff with that Java and getting introduced to that, what was that transition into finding the functional world and finding Elm? Yeah. So in terms of like the Java, the the whole curriculum of the university curriculum was Java and MySQL. So that kind of just teaches the foundational concepts of programming in general. So when I got my first job, I should say also that all the web development stuff that I do has always been with like charities, nonprofits, and like really small grassroots organizations. And so not building complex, scalable, distributed, massive systems, but just building like small tools for people to use either for the charities themselves to use or for the people they're trying to help to use. So a lot of the stuff that I do isn't very complicated. It's like building fancy forms which a lot of the stuff that we do in general in web development is like that. A lot of the hard problems are solved by other people already. So anyway, so when I started, I was actually building Facebook and Bebo apps, and they were PHP-based. And I've stuck with PHP, so I do use that in the back end still now. And front-end-wise, I was always a back-end developer. <laughs> so I did stuff with when WordPress and Drupal came in, so all PHP-based frameworks and Symfony. And then I got hired to do, or as I kind of progressed to be like a lead developer, I got the lead on a project which didn't have a backend. And that was the point when I very first used Elm for a client because I'd been playing with Elm, I'd been introduced to it, I'd been really fascinated with, I think I went to a talk, about F-Shark was the very first time that I'd ever heard of this thing called functional. And I was like, wow, I definitely need to use that, but it just wasn't applicable to my job. So yes, yeah, so then I was playing with Elm and I got this job where it didn't have a backend. And I just said to my company, I'm going to build this in Elm. And they went, uh, we can't stop you. <laughs> and yeah, I, I haven't looked back ever since. I use it a lot and I promote Elm a lot as a beginner friendly language because partly what I do is try and build really inclusive teams. So like people who don't consider themselves to be technical will be making commits on GitHub if they're working on my project. If they want to, of course, I don't force anyone to do anything, but often you find that people want to get involved, but they're worried that they're not smart enough or that what you're doing is sort of magic, crazy science stuff that they couldn't understand. So I have a side project with uh, computer science professor Felina Hermans, who's uh, based at Leiden University, which is called Code Reading Club. And she's written a book about the programmer's brain. She's actually one of the keynote speakers at Lambda Days as well. And that is all about how programmers, like how your brain interprets reading the code. We run clubs with exercises that help you get better at reading code, essentially. I mean, I don't want to sidetrack into that whole thing, but but yeah. And before we get to Adam and establish his route and what it finds to, with his Scala experience, I want to follow up real quick and say, you're going through these languages. You mentioned you did PHP, you're kind of back end, you get to front end, you found F sharp a little bit and like, oh, that's weird and different and interesting. And if you're going Elm, what was that transition from, I guess, that first hint of F-sharp and actually picking up Elm and using a different way of thinking? Because 
again, functional programming, there's a lot of recursion. There's a lot. Of, Elm has immutability. Elm has a different set of types than you get. And if, especially if you're doing PHP, you might be thinking in the types, but you don't necessarily get to express them all the all everywhere. What was that transition to Elm? And what was the appeal about Elm as well? Well, the transition, like I've kind of skipped out. So when I did work on front ends, I was using React and Angular. And later I had used TypeScript as well. Like all of those were all coming out at the same time. So one of the things about Elm is that it's so much less stressful to use Elm because the, because the types are baked into the language. They are not the same as the types that you use in any other, any other of those frameworks that we've mentioned or those languages where you're sort of constantly fighting them because they're not ubiquitous. So anytime you introduce, uh, like with TypeScript, you can just have JavaScript side by side with it. And anytime you do that, then you're kind of losing the benefit of the types and you're actually making a burden for yourself. So yeah, with, with the transition to Elm, yeah, I think like, the first time that I, I wrote like a mapping function in Elm, those kind of like, or used any kind of recursion, I did have to think really hard about it and copy paste from Stack Overflow and ask people about it. But it very, very quickly turns into something that's natural. If I suppose if your brain is good at algebra, then your brain will naturally be good at functional and Elm has very few barriers it's it's designed in such a way that you can kind of get started without really understanding what's going on under the hood and what i found with it is that it actually taught me functional paradigms and functional programming so by the time i'd been using it for a few years i then can go back and actually understand what react is trying to do for example and i think i never would have understood that if i was just battling with learning react where everything is much more hidden it's and so when you went into Elm, you're like, ooh, wait, I got to do, I can't make any side effects. I can't make any updates to my state. I've got to put it kind of all globally. Or were you, were you kind of in some of those camps that I consider lucky as a functional programmer that was like, oh, no, no, we're taking the functional side of React and sticking to the functional side with pure stateless components that get passed in and we try and mutable. Maybe it's redux sagas or redux and things like that that push the side effects off to the side versus like i'm in a component the state gets passed in i hold on my state i have updates and i fire off events and do stuff inside my components we had both so i was at the time i was working in a small agency which had 15 developers in it and we swapped between projects quite a lot and we all were kind of learning like when all of these languages in the it was around 2000 15 i think when they were all sort of emerging we were trying all of them one after the other after the other and yeah so both so learned all the hard learned all the hard lessons and it just it kept reinforcing when i'm using elm kept reinforcing the reason why like some people who come to elm from react like i'm working with someone right now who is and it does sometimes feel like you're battling against something until you sort of turn a corner and you can see the reasoning behind it. There's a few things that are seem like randomness, like a random number. This is one thing that they were, why can't I just have a random number in here? And you're like, well, because it depends on something outside. Like it's not just a random number. <laughs> so little things like that make JavaScript developers frustrated that they can't just have this instant thing. 
and that you have to go all around the houses to get it. But I think I find it very, very stressful to work in React. And I find it very relaxing to work in Elm. So that's. <laughs> yeah, I was doing some uh, React recently. I'm mainly a backend developer, but sometimes I try to do some front end as well. And I must say I was quite disappointed with it as I <laughs> heard that it's very functional. But then you get these React hooks, which are, well, they seem maybe a bit functional because, you know, there are function calls and everything. But if you look behind the scenes, there's some global variables that are being set and that's the way the whole state of the component is being maintained. So yeah, it was quite, it was hard to understand. Like from a, maybe I tried to understand too much, but it was hard to follow like what's exactly happening and how that magic with the hook works. So. Uh, yeah, and the hooks weren't there at the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah, I know, and, I know that they yeah, changed it, but and, and now I, it's and, less way. So now it's but they're trying. No, of course. Doing, right? I think. <laughs> of course. <laughs> React has done some amazing work. They're you know they're they're very good engineers and they have got a very solid good foundation. It's just I find things frustrating, like for example the the JSX syntax. They're trying to make it easy for people who write HTML to write the React. But under the hood, all that's doing is functions in the same way that Elm is making functions to write, you know, you write a div that takes an argument of a, of a list of attributes and a list of whatever the contents are, you know, more HTML nodes. And React is doing that under the hood. And I feel like they should trust the developers a little bit more and not, not put this extra layer on top, which, and I think the hooks are part of that and the context is part of that as well. It's like just, Trust us to be able to to do that part because yeah they're making it maybe more more complicated to work with than it needs to be. Okay, so your turn, Adam. Where was your background? You said you did a lot of Scala. Where were you coming from beforehand? What other languages had you done? Have you done before that? And then what was your transition into Scala and some of those? ways of thinking were you primed for that was there a stumble kind of thing so let's let's establish <laughs> some background around this okay well so i started programming at an early age as well maybe eight or nine or something like that and it's similar ed with katya i started with quick basic and uh, pascal these were very nice languages i don't know why we are still not using them i was very happy with them then I had my episode with Logo, and I still have fond memories. It's really nice that you can see what you are programming. And actually, I came back to Logo after all those years, and we wrote a little Logo-like language, which tries to be a bit functional, but that's like a side note. So after that, I went to the university, and actually on the first lecture, it was called Introduction to Programming. The lecturer said that we are going to get divided into two groups. One is going to learn imperative programming and the other is going to learn functional programming. And the imperative programming group is going to learn Pascal. And I thought, well, I know Pascal, so let's go to the other group. I had no idea what functional programming is. And of course, I didn't know Pascal at the level that they taught there. It, well, it, they didn't really teach Pascal, but algorithm, but I didn't know that as well back then. So that's how I got into functional programming. I quickly learned what it is. We did a scheme over there for a year or two. And then I did some OCaml, which also isn't like Scala has uh, gets some inspiration from OCaml. But then I started working, you know, for money, as we all have to do from time to time. And I started using Java a lot at JBoss. 
which then became Red Hat. Then we founded Softromel, which is our company, as I mentioned. And, you know, I was doing Java a lot, but I still had fond memories from universities about functional programming and about how, how nice it was to, I guess I liked the elegance of the functional approach. So I was looking for something that would be able to run in the same environment as Java and still get some of the nice things. So I found Scala this way. And I managed to like, find a first one client for a company that allowed us to do Scala commercially. And that client was kind enough to actually let us learn Scala while we were developing the project. And then we slowly grew. So now like the company has 80 people and probably like six or 7% of them are Scala engineers. So I guess we made quite a good name for ourselves in the Scala world. And in Poland, as a Scala development company, of course, not only Scala, that's one of our areas, but that's what I think we might be known for. So yeah, that's how I traveled into Scala. So if you had some scheme background from your university days and did a little bit of OCaml, and you're remembering some of that fondly because you're looking at something functional on the JVM, what about the scheme versus what about the OCaml made you kind of go with Scala as a look? Because you have, I don't know when you started picking up Scala and doing Scala for this, but you potentially had Clojure around, you had Groovy and some of the others that were kind of the, we're going to try and be more functional. And there was the, some of the others, well, there was another Java language my mind's going blank on, which was like, it was almost more of a library, but it made you, it gave the functional kind of stuff with it, kind of how you would get with a Lodash or... Ramda kind of thing, I think, thought that there was another, here's an extra little thing that you can do that kind of like makes your Java less Java-ish, kind of like what Kotlin wound up being. <laughs> but what? Well, that's what Groovy did, right? Groovy was the, well, Groovy is like Java, but with better syntax. Kotlin kind of diverted from that, I guess, went its own way, but you still get stuck in the same ecosystem. So Scala, like functional programming is not just nice syntax and, you know, being able to pass around functions as first class values, but it's also kind of a mindset, like maybe some social thing as, as to how we, uh, how we program and so on. And I think, for example, the fact that it's a simple thing, but the fact that the, in the standard library, you have collections which are immutable by default versus in Java, you have mutable collections by default. That's like the major difference between these two ecosystems, right? So Groovy, Kotlin, and so on, they're all, they are all built on these immutable foundation. Unlike Scala, which has its own, which, you know, makes it maybe a little less interoperable with the rest of the JVM world, but also allows it to use much more power of the functional side. And I think immutability is one, one thing that really sets it apart. As for why not closure, I like static typing a lot. I think it's a psychological trait, maybe. I don't know. I think you know, some <laughs> people are like dynamic typing and some like static. So I, I, I'm on the static camp. I had some a short adventure with a theorem prover in, in the university days, Koch, which is like static typing taken to the extreme. Uh, but I abandoned that path. So that's, that was too much. So yeah, I think Scala has hit the right spot here. I also did my master's thesis in the category theory, which I think 
what I liked about the category theory is the elegance of some of the proofs and the generality of some of the proofs. And I think the same thing you can say about some of the functional, you know, the, the fact that you can do all those higher order things and you can often do very general solutions, maybe sometimes even too general and very elegant solutions to some of the problems. And that's what I really liked about the whole, you know, area, not about Scala itself. That's, of course, not to say that you need any category theory background to do Scala function programming, which I think is false. It's an interesting area to learn, but you can absolutely do it without. I know some people are making such statements, and I think it's not really true and not really productive to do that. So So it sounds like, as you just said, the types were one big selling point, but the fact that you actually recognized immutability versus like, oh, Kotlin and Groovy and all this stuff can give me a functional veneer on the code I write and let me write it without having the immutability. I know some people stop there and they don't recognize the importance of immutability. What was scheme? You kind of sort of have it. And like if you've played with common Lisp, there's more mutability. So it kind of ranges across the spectrum on where immutability falls for different functional languages and how how much immutability have you, you get and how much you can opt into and things like that. What was that selling point that said, nope, if I'm going to stay on JVM and I want to pick functional, I'm going, I want immutability too, and not just the category theory types. Or was that, I'm looking at category theory types. To be honest, I don't really remember that well. It was like eight years ago. So, but I think it wasn't really that much, uh, maybe, well, it was a conscious choice for the most part, but not that much. In the large part, it was still luck, I think. In the end, you know, we had to get a paying project and it just so happened that we managed to find a paying project in Scala. You know, it's these uh, occurrences that govern our life. It's the same luck. I was sending out some internship inquiries when I was at university to many companies and JBoss responded, hey, you can work remotely in the summer. I said, sure. Well, that's a great opportunity. And so I did. And I started working remotely for the next 20 years almost now, just because of that episode, which was, you know, I could have ended in a corporation as well if they responded to my internship email. I think, you know, my adventure with Scala was to some parts the same. I probably had like a narrow list of things I, I could work with. I remember I tried to apply for um, a project in Ocom. There's a company that's doing a lot of Ocom in New York, which I forgot the name, uh, Jane Street. But they rejected me, so I stayed with Scala. <laughs> <laughs> So sometimes the answer is simpler than you might expect, <laughs> especially now that I was uh, I was quite young back then, and I, I I'm not sure I knew what I was doing. Uh, and some of that is how much of that was luck, and how much of that was kind of like trying to find the opportunity to pick your language and say, I found this language, this is really appealing, and I'm like working my way to get in there, kind of thing too. So. Maybe I would say that I had good intuition. I really didn't know why exactly. Now I can tell you why exactly Scala is a really good choice. Back then, maybe not so much, but I think, you know, the, maybe my category theory background scheme and so on background built some intuition that this might be a good, good thing to follow. And I think it worked out for me. And now that we've got some background, both of you 
have been tagged for this year's Lambda Days committee. Looking at the lineup, you've got, still got some of the good big names of the program committee as well that you see there every year. And I know they cycle some of them out now that Michal is gone and moved on to some other stuff. At least for this year, he said maybe he'll be back, but maybe not for Lambda Days. He's taking a break at some point. You're on the Lambda Days committee. Do you want to give some experience reports of what it's been like being on the Lambda Days committee this year, picking the programs, going through, trying to figure out, come up with names, who's the speakers, the process that some of that stuff went in that you got to see? Yeah, so I, I guess I will start. So one of the things that's made it really difficult this year is COVID. We had Lambda Days last year. was I don't, They didn't skip a year, did they? They just went virtual for a year and this year i think it was it was always going to be in person but then it was really touch and go and we had it scheduled for the middle of february or the end of february and at the kind of last minute before we were about to go live with it it got cancelled because of covid and then obviously like a week later the the war in ukraine had also started so all of these things have made it like all these kind of outside big happening things have made it feel a little bit up in the air. And it's really difficult to book speakers, uh, especially keynote speakers. If you're saying, well, it might be online, it might be here, it might be at this time, it might be another time. So that's been, that's been difficult, not having that control. Yeah, I don't know. Did you want to jump in, Adam? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, you were asking about the process itself. I think it's uh, much less magical than you might think. <laughs> it's mainly reading. You have to read through quite a lot of submissions and try to do some filtering. You can't investigate everybody maybe as as thoroughly as they would deserve it to, but there's simply too many people to to read. But luckily, there's quite a lot, quite uh, some people on the committee, so. Always somebody, you know, if, if, if a talk sparks some interest in somebody, they will investigate more and actually see if the speaker, because it's not only an interesting abstract, it's also important if you can deliver the talk in an interesting way, right? So some background speaking experience is important. Like if there's a YouTube video where you can, where we can actually see how the person behaves on stage and so on. Yeah. So that's, that's mainly what being on a committee means. Is uh, reading through the submissions. If you get interested, checking some of the background of the speaker and uh, of the talk, and then you know, in, in a meeting, discussing how the program should should line up. I was going to say as well, like one of the strategies that we used was we did, like, as you said, we do have like a very diverse range of people on the committee who are academics and in different parts of the industry as well, and that means that we can all refer to each other you know asking what we what we know about this what we think about this or what what it sounds like and one of the things that we really wanted to do was make sure that we had a really broad coverage of different languages and different and also like different ranges of things that were accessible to beginners and things that seasoned functional programmers would come and get excited about something new so we've got a couple of things on the program which are really sort of what I would consider to be cutting edge like Futhark and Nix um, and I think there's a rust, rust in there as well. Yeah, I think that's uh, what the best selling point of Lambda Day 3 is. That, you know, we all have our specialities, like 
I, well, I used to at least before COVID, I used to go to a lot of Scala conferences, but it's still quite a narrow crowd, right? And it's mm. uh, very useful to see what's outside. There are also the general, let's say, conferences, like you can go to DevOps or something like that, which are also interesting, but they are maybe sometimes too broad. Lambda Days, I think, hits the sweet spot when it comes to having talks on a subject that I'm interested in, being like functional programming, but not only Scala, which is also the nice and refreshing to see what's outside, right? So I think that's one of the, the best features of Lambda Days, and I'm happy it's happening finally in, in person. Because remote conferences, they were fun for a year, but that's about it, I, mean, I, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with that. And I think because I, I do also go to different conferences, which are like language specialized ones. I go to obviously the Elm ones, but also the ones that or I've been to JavaScript ones as well. Also ones that are general. And you're right that this is a really good sweet spot between the two. I think one of the other like really good things about this. So if you go to a, a language specific conference, a lot of the talks are often are often about like packages, libraries and things that are maybe new or complicated or niche or exciting. And with this, we can sort of go across the range of maybe more theoretical talks as well. And like there are a couple of library talks, but it's a lot of it is also experience talks, case studies about how a thing is applied into something and I think you find less of that when you go to a language-specific conference. Oh, yeah, that's another good point, that uh, when you're picking talks for a, co- for a conference like Lambda Days, that's like two axes that you need to satisfy. You need to balance the program that, you know, there's some Haskell, some Scala, some, some Clojure, some Elm, and so on. But the other axis would be that you want to have some, like, practical talks, some theoretical talks, Maybe some philosophical ones, like what's the meaning of the universe with functional programming and so on. Some fun talks as well. So, uh, you know, there's a mix of these as well. So, yeah, that's what we like, uh, the two directions that you have to consider when choosing a program. Yeah, and I, I think it draws an audience, which is from the academic side, but also from the industry side. And when you get those two groups of people together, and there's, there are people obviously who cross over between the two as well, quite a lot of people. But when you get those two groups of people in the same sort of geographical space, then you can have some very interesting sort of leaps of, I was going to say leaps of practicality, but not that, but just changing the way we do things in industry and also changing the things that academics are researching because it applies to what we need them to look into. And Conferences like Lambda Days are really well positioned to get those conversations going. Right. Well, there is the research track, which actually has a separate call for papers, a separate committee and so on, but it's happening like in parallel. So we can go and visit both tracks, which is also nice because we usually don't, at least on like industry conferences, let's say, we don't get to know much what's happening in academia. And it's sometimes interesting, even maybe not that practical and that, you know, you, you can probably apply it next day at your day job, but still, you know, broadens your horizons, I guess. So that's a nice aspect as well. Yeah. One of my first experiences in functional programming directly. So I had like a list class and an a little AI, basic AI course in college without really understanding that it was about functional programming. If it was even about functional programming versus like, Oh, here's some, 
everything's a list. And it's like, okay, well, we didn't actually take advantage of that. But the first directed one was closure. <laughs> and it was like the closure community, especially in their early, early days, there's, they still seem good about it. Is like, look, if you have a good idea, we'll go steal it from whatever language it is. Cause a good idea is a good idea. And we'll just have to figure out how to make it fit. And that's one of the things I like about Lambda days is you got the, some of this may be theoretical or this is Haskell, but this is the way that you could do it. Even if you're not in Haskell, it's like, sure, you might lose out some of the convenience on types, but if you actually, you can kind of squint and you could do this monad or do this other kind of thing in another way and still get some of the kind of benefits. You might lose the type checking aspect of it, but you can still get the code cleanliness idea of doing some of this stuff. Like, Oh, you want to do a task in JavaScript? Well, you can kind of have a nice task thing in JavaScript based off some of those libraries that they've put out there. But it's like some of these ideas can transition and you might just have to squint them and tease them a little bit, but it's like a good idea and one and that Lambda's day seems to be that like, even if we're doing this in a language, there's a bit of the, as you said, it's specific here, but it's also theoretical and it's not just, Hey, here's the library, but like, here's the library. This is Haskell. But if you wanted to go out in your language, like here's the basic premises of these in the past, it has seemed, which makes Lambda days seem really appealing for me to eventually go to one, one day. <laughs> yeah. We hope you make it. <laughs> You'll make it over one day. I'm sure. Yeah. That was really interesting. What you said about when you were using, I can't remember which language you said you were, you were learning, but um, where everything was a list, but you didn't, Take, was it a list or a lisp? Closure. Closure is a lisp, but this was, I don't know which version of, yeah. I don't know if this was even a scheme, if it was scheme or common lisp at that point in the college course where it's like, oh, we're just going to talk about everything's a lisp, but it's not like, we're not explaining it to you because we're trying to get you through the AI side of the course and go through the textbook. And that's like, oh, now that you realize that, it's like, okay, now you understand what that means. And what, what I was going to do is, is go back to the point that Adam was making about the immutability that's built into these functional languages and, and the frameworks is that you get this, you get like a free foundation essentially. And you had that free foundation of everything being a list without really realizing what the power of it was. And I think when you then, if you try and apply functional programming techniques, to a framework or a language that isn't fundamentally functional, then you don't have that free foundation. So it's really hard to get started in a language or a framework that isn't designed as functional. And I think the same thing will apply with types. And I, I feel like that might be one of the reasons why people struggle to adopt them as their favorite thing on the type side and the immutability side and like all of the things that we love about functional programming if you try them halfway they don't make you secure i don't know if i'm if i'm saying if i'm saying that very well but i think it's a really good thing to point out for people who are thinking of coming functional if you're trying to learn functional leap out of your language that you're using and use something that is designed to be functional well yeah, i guess especially coming after when I was coming up to Java, you know, you develop this kind of fear that when you pass in something to a function or to a method, rather, it's going to get mutated somehow or yeah. something will happen, right? 
So you you develop this fear and then you have to unlearn it that it's actually safe to manipulate it afterwards because, you know, we're just creating immutable copies and so on. And it won't break the other object of the other class that you've just created. So that's, I think, maybe that's, that's how I understood what you were saying, but just that reminded me of my learning experience of how I had to unlearn some things from Java. And then this year's Lambda Days, was it always going to be a hybrid track or was it originally going to be all in person and the last minute changes changes to be a hybrid track? It was originally going to be all in person, but there was really big questions over whether there was going to be allowed international travel and especially like from America into Europe and like the wider international travel, not just on this continent. So we had it in the back of our minds that we might have to offer some people to be virtual. We're still trying to get most of the talks in person, but there is still a, a feeling that it's difficult to travel. And what is that going to look like? I've seen it on the website, but from a organizational kind of stuff, because last year when it was all virtual, it was, okay, everybody's giving presentations. I know some people recorded their presentations just to help with network glitching and they were still there. So they were able to give their presentation because it was pre-recorded, but with the community chats and stuff, they were still chatting and talking in the community. Like they were engaging during their talks, answering any questions kind of in real time. But there was also like, we realize this is virtual. Here's the virtual tables. Go hang out at the virtual tables. Give a spot to people to meet and hang out hallway track style. Do you know, are you familiar? Have you worked with any of what that planning is? Or is that just more on the conference planning side and not as much the program side for the plans for how that might work out this year? It's more on the on the conference planning side, but we did touch on it in our last meeting when we were trying to finalize the schedule, like what the what was on in the different tracks at the same time. And we did talk about putting those virtual talks in different auditoriums at different times and whether or not we needed to have like a dry run in one of them. And the conference organizing committee have said that they they have practiced the hybrid situation in two of the rooms at that conference center that we're using and so we're running our virtual talks from those two those two rooms and not the third room yeah i think it's going to be streamed live with like questions afterwards yeah. so there's like a you know big screen and so on so on the technical side i think it's uh, quite a good venue for this type of activities and i wasn't sure how much you knew because from someone who doesn't necessarily get to go to conferences the idea of a virtual conference alongside the in-person one sounds interesting if it's more than just the live stream of everything and you can have like figure out how to manage a virtual hallway track along with <laughs> along with the track as well too. So that's what I was wondering I didn't know if there were any I think the virtual it's... hallway track was one of the most challenging things when remote <laughs> conferences. But it's also, you know, one of the, I think, at least for me, one of the benefits for the for a conference as an attendee, when you actually go to that place, is that you have this dedicated chunk of time for actually being on the conference, like sitting at home and watching. It's possible, but it requires much more dedication to actually follow 
what's on screen all, all the time, right? There's too many distractions. And once you actually dedicate the whole day of going to the conference and being there, well, you can check your phone and so on, but most of the time you will be listening and talking and so on. So I think that's, that's one of the biggest benefits. And that's why I think it might still work quite well, even though if this, some of the speakers will be remote. Well, the speakers will be remote, but you will be there and you will be sitting and actually listening. And then you will have the occasion to actually talk about the lecture afterwards. So I think it might work. I hope it might work quite well. Yeah, I think it's very different to having a fully virtual conference for sure, because exactly what you say, the benefit for being at the place is that you come out of the, you come out of the talk and you speak to everyone around you about, you know, what you just heard and the speakers as well. Obviously the ones who aren't virtual <laughs> can come out and speak to you. So I've, I've been to a couple of hybrid presentations, which were very compelling. I think the, the most important thing is that the speaker is speaking live to a live audience and it makes a big difference. And I was also thinking from the, just as the attendee perspective, because the virtual Lambda days was like, Hey, I can go interact with people that are all about virtual Lambda days at the virtual tables last year. Whereas previous years, it's just go watch the videos out on YouTube. It's like, well, if I can't make it, I know I can always watch the videos, but the hybrid has this nice little illusion of this is all new territory. And I was wondering that guy's kind of curious if there was any program committee kind of stuff around the virtual guests as well and making sure the virtual guests could go in like, there's going to be a place where make sure you hop on to the virtual tables too, even if you're in person as well, or some, I don't, I don't imagine many conferences have gone to the like, Hey, we're doing everything in a university. So we'll just put the 360 degree camera around like some of the meeting rooms at the corporate offices used to do where it's like, everybody's <laughs> kind of on camera and you can have this bit like, here's half the group here. And then the other half is on their laptops kind of stuff. I just wasn't sure if, the program committee had done stuff we for we haven't been involved in that we our role is mostly to get the program the speakers and the program order and and the breadth of it worked out so i'm sure that they the conference organizers are thinking about exactly what you're saying and if they're not then we'll have to refer them to this podcast because you've had a couple of nice well, ideas i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure basha has because i know she was involved with all the uh conferences last year with the Lambda Day stuff and putting that on and organizing all that kind of stuff and like, oh nope, we tested out. Oh yeah, she's been she's been involved in Lambda yeah. Days for a number of years. So she's like a veteran in that space. I'm sure she's got some stuff. I just wasn't sure how much of that stuff from the program committee side there was I guess directions from her to like when we're doing program committee stuff, here's how you set up the program committee to help make sure we get good interactivity as well from any virtual guests who can't make it. So I didn't know mm. if there was anything that you all had done as part of the program committee for that side too, as well, or if it was mainly all on the organizational side. Yeah, that's all on the organization side. I guess we were curious as to how it's going to work like you, but that's about it. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else we want to cover on Lambda Days? If we don't, we got some time left. And I'm kind of curious to talk about the beginner experience that both of you might see with bringing people in. But is there anything else that we 
should talk about with Lamb today is that you're thinking of that we haven't covered that you think is useful to know from the perspective of people on the program committee or any fun insights of like, oh, yeah, this was really neat about sitting in on the program committee this year. Meeting John Hughes was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think that I have anything. Yeah, well, there's a couple of talks, you know, I've, I mean, I'm interested in, but how they play out with, on, on, uh, we'll see, uh, we'll see soon, right? So, so I don't think I have anything specific on the Lambda days. Okay. And I'd like to move into just getting new, newer people adoption and just some of the things that you've seen because both of you had mentioned bringing in new people. So, Katya, you're bringing in new people to Elm. You're potentially even bringing in business people who aren't programmers and getting them to onboard Elm. If Software Mill has grown to 80 people and you've got a bunch of Scala projects, I'm sure not everyone there is necessarily long-tenured people in Scala and you're having to get people on board. Let's share a couple tips and things you found about just bringing people on board and some of the things that the functional programming community may need to watch out for and the places we are doing well as well for bringing people in and helping to either bridge the gap as a complete newcomer or a newcomer to a language with a functional mindset as well. So, Okay, so maybe let me start. Uh, as you said, yeah, we do quite a lot of training of people. It's mainly people who come from Java, so they have like some background which is shared among them. Right now we are starting with some junior developers, right, of the university, so that's a bit of a different experience. I think that's probably a Scala-specific thing, but a lot of people, quite a lot of time, people are a bit of afraid and maybe intimidated by the language, by the popular opinion that you need to jump right into more of the complex stuff, like there's like a library called CATS, which introduces you to monads, functors, applicatives, and so on, to the functional representation of side effects, like the IO monad, and so on. So that's all useful, but I think it's not like the prerequisite to actually doing functional programming. So as I said before, I think just embracing immutability and embracing the fact that everything is an expression, which is like the second foundation which is also different from Java, right? In Java, not everything is an expression. And here, you know, if you have an if, the result of that is an expression and you can assign it to a value. So these are the two, like, two building blocks, right? So, so the first thing is that you can store all references without being afraid to, and you can, then you can create as many copies of things as you'd like and the garbage collector will actually take care of that and the th and the second foundation is embracing the fact that everything is an expression that you can match on things that you can assign values freely wherever they come from and you can do like a lot of functional code just using these two things without knowing you know what a monad is really so i guess that would be one important aspect that we try to emphasize when learning people, certainly not requiring them to start with some of the more advanced concepts. I was just trying to come up with a good explanation because we are for another conference that's running in Krakow, Geekon. We are doing some kind of like a competition about monads, let's say, and as like some accompanying material to that, I was asked to explain in 10 minutes what a monad is. I failed to do that because it took me 17 minutes record the video so at, despite a couple of attempts but it was it, it, it was quite challenging so there's definitely like things that 
we are still learning how to do, like how to explain these concepts. Because you will arrive, once you master the basics of functional programming, you will arrive at the monad concept or the functor or whatever at some point. And it's useful to know because just in communication, right, it's useful to know what people are talking about. So I think we are quite far from having like a good recipe of how to learn people, but we are getting there. So for me, on the practical side, if you're trying to get someone to contribute to a new code base, then I firstly go for tickets which are just about copy, essentially. So changing some strings in one place and then seeing them on the screen. That's a really good. And and it is um, like what Adam said, it's, it's all about confidence. So if people are fearful of doing something that will break everything, then they, they won't do it well and they, or they, or they just won't do it at all. So having an atmosphere and a community in your company that allows people to feel safe in being vulnerable or, um, so having some of your like more senior members, like not going around saying that they're smarter than everyone, <laughs> that kind of thing, sort of showing that sometimes they also don't know things because that is true. We all, none of us know everything. So it's really helpful if you do have conversations and meetings with where you've got senior developers and junior developers together and the senior developers will, you know, say to a junior developer, Oh, that's an amazing insight. I never would have thought of that. Or where a senior will ask another senior a question in front of them, things like that. So maybe not hiding behind, not pretending you know everything is a really important thing just for your culture as a whole. But then on the functional side of things, I really like Eric Norman's theory or strategy of having the five steps to becoming functional sort of so that you don't have to learn it all at once. And I don't know if I'm going to remember them properly, but the very first step in becoming functional is being able to identify the difference between what is data in your, in your application and what is actions and what is calculations, I think are the three things. And if you can start to think about programming and your programs in that way, where you're always where your brain is always saying, ah, that's a data, oh, that's a calculation, and that's an action, and the actions are the side effects kind of things. So the calculations are like pure functions, and the data is obviously the, the immutable data. And when you start to structure your thinking in that way, you can start to feel really smart about your program a lot sooner than if it just all looks like a big jumble of symbols on the page. I'm not remembering what the next <laughs> what the next steps are, but they're about progress. They progress up to being the whole like modeling the whole architecture, and in between there, it's the use of higher order functions, and so like using them and passing them around and creating them and just recognizing when you're doing that and when it's useful. But I think yeah, I see Katya, you have it much better order than we do. I think we need to borrow that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because we basically tell people, you know, uh, if, if, if they come from Java, that uh, there's a couple of online courses that you can do, which is an, an introduction to Scala and an introduction to functional programming, which are, which I think are quite good. But maybe, you know, the, these steps would actually help as well into uh, making a more ordered transition. And then we just ask people, you know, I, as I'm working on some open source pro projects, I just give them some tasks so that they, they, they can actually code something, uh, which is maybe, you know, working on an open source library is not the best way you can learn a language, especially if it's new, but it's also relatively pain-free, right? Because it's not, it's not for a client or anything like that. So you, I think this, it's, it's not as stressful 
Maybe. But yeah, I, I, I will gladly take the, the link to, the, <laughs> to these five steps afterwards. I've got another, I've got another tip, which is because I'm, right now I'm, I'm obsessed with naming things at the moment and thinking about how we can all be better at that because of my work with reading code as well. And I, I one of the really great things of, of working with a new developer, either a new developer on a project or, or a junior developer, a beginner to programming is if you, write the tickets for them in such a way that you don't give them the names of things. So don't say like, make a variable called maximum people allowed in this room, but just you tell them what to do. And then you can get a lot of insight into how well they understand either the domain, if they're, you know, they might be a senior developer who's coming into a new domain. And when they make their names up, it shows you what they understand about where they're working and with someone who's beginner developer the same thing you can kind of see by what they're calling something how well they understand what it is what it's going to do oh yeah coming up with names is the hardest thing it's like (laughs) half a day half a day coming up with a good name and then 30 minutes of coding and you actually find it so so So, i I agree if if you find if you find a good uh, good way to name things (laughs) let me know well, I very rarely stick with the name I first thought of. So when mm. I, when I'm writing a brand new feature, I usually change the variable names two or three times. By the time I get to the end of the thing that I've written, I'm like, ah, this is what it's doing. And then I rename everything that I, that I used before. And exactly. of course, uh, Elm is very, very good language for that. And um, not, not just Elm, but actually all of our modern like tooling that we have now that's been developed over the past five or 10 years within uh, certainly the ecosystem that I'm working in, which means that we have linting like prettifiers, code linting, telling us whether what we're doing is legal or illegal within the team standards. And with the strong types, these functional languages, that tooling can go even like way, way further in keeping you safe. There's a few talks at Lambda Days about that from a couple of different languages and frameworks, which for people coming new into it, those kind of crutches are really important, I think. And I have worked on teams within the past couple of years who don't insist on having continuous iteration or uh, linting or anything set up from the start of the project. But I, I would never do that because it makes it harder for everybody on the team. I would always set it up from the start. And maybe you just hit on that's why functional programmers love higher order functions so much is because... We can just get away with naming the variable X or X's. We're like, okay, it's X's. We don't have to come up with a good name. <laughs> but you do if I come along and read it. <laughs> so we're pretty much at our time. Where can people find you, track you down, online, follow along? We'll get the Lambda Days link in. But you personally, to keep up to date with what's going on, best places for people to find you. And if you, each of you have any recommendations or shout outs that you want or plugs you want to put in at this point as well, be happy to include those in the show notes. I don't have any social media. (laughs) So I've got my, you can find me on the Elm Slack and there's a few Elm discords as well. There's incremental Elm and Elmcraft. So I'm on all of those and I'm always cat jam, K-A-T-J-A-M. So yeah, those and the arm slack would be me. And my plug would be come to one of my code reading clubs. And How do you do that? Idea. Survive without social media? I've got so much to learn from you, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just old. <laughs> 
Where's the best place to find one of those code reading clubs? Codereading.club. Adam? Okay, I have no idea what code reading is, but it really sounds intriguing. I have to check it out. <laughs> but it's always like that. When I listen to a talk, I get this list of links that I need to follow up with. And I open all those tabs. And eventually, after a week or two, I manage to at least glance at them. Anyway, so you can find me on, I guess, Twitter is the best medium. Adamorski over there. As for plugs, I guess if you'd like to take a look at uh, Tapir, which is like the open source projects I'm working on right now, it would be get, great to get some feedback. It's maybe not the most exciting domain as it's defining, describing HTTP endpoints, but I think the approach is quite novel, at, at least as far as Java is, is doing. And from a completely different territory, we have this logo-like language which I mentioned, which is called Shelly, Shelly.dev, which behind the scenes, you might not notice it, but it has some functional inspiration, let's say. It behaves a bit differently from logo as it tries to be more functional, but it's still aimed more for kids so that they can learn programming in a visual way. So I guess these two. When you're teaching them functional without them realizing, is that? Part of your strategy? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well, um, I hope so. Like, I was thinking about how you can actually teach functional programming to kids without all, you know, this. You, you want to talk to them about immutability and everything being an expression because that's like way too abstract, right? So that's my attempt at what you might do. Not sure if it's successful. Uh, but you can judge yourself. I'll make sure to get all those added to the show notes. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Adam. Thank you, Katja, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. And hopefully someday soon we'll be able to meet in person at a Lambda Days within the next couple of years. Uh, hopefully my girls will be getting old enough that I can then take that trip from the U.S. over to Krakow and go and actually make that trip. Or maybe even bringing them along for extended weekends. Bring uh, thank you for taking your time to join me today. Definitely it was a pleasure talking them. with you and getting to meet both of you. You too. Thank you very much for having us on. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.